Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Trig It Till You Make It podcast. My name is Lauren Valdis. I'm the Medical Director of Education here at SWARP, and I have today joining me Dr. Danielle Kelton. She's a fourth-year emergency medicine resident here at the Western slash LHSC Emergency Medicine Program and is joining us today because she did a Grand Rounds earlier this spring on this very topic, so I did not make up this catchy title. This is all her. So welcome, Dr. Kelton. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, hi, Dr. Valdis. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. All right, so we are going to start with a few trach basics. And again, this material all comes from the emergency medicine grand rounds that Dr. Kelton gave earlier this spring. It was so fantastic, and I learned so much that I invited her to come and give a podcast, and she graciously did. She's extremely busy this year between her fellowship at the Fowler Kennedy Sports Medicine Clinic, as well as her academic uh, requirements, and still picking up a merge shift. So really appreciate her being here today. So we're going to start with just a quick review of trachs, and Dr. Kelton's going to answer them for me. So starting off, Danielle, why would a patient be trached? So these days we're looking at two major indications for tracheostomy in the patients that we'll be seeing, certainly in a pre-hospital setting. The first indication would be, for some reason, the upper airway isn't patent. So they may have a mass uh, in the upper airway, in the oropharynx. They may have had a laryngectomy. Typically that's going to be for malignancy. They may have radiation-related changes that would mean that there's no patent passageway between their mouth and their nose and their uh, trachea. So one way to bypass that would be a tracheostomy. The second reason that we'll see trached patients would be for respiratory muscle weakness. So in our neuromuscular disease patients, so ALS is sort of the prototypical example there, patients requiring prolonged ventilation or difficulty weaning from ventilation or have some congenital disease that does not allow them to breathe spontaneously on their own due to weakness of their respiratory muscles. Great. So that's why you may encounter a patient with a tracheostomy. Dr. Kelton, what are some questions that are important for a paramedic to ask when they pick up a patient with a tracheostomy? Yeah, there's going to be some really important information to gather, especially from family or caretakers who are familiar with the patient. So the first question and sort of one of the more important questions will be, what kind of trach is it? So part of that is sort of what were the indications for the trach? Why does that patient have the trach? Going back to our previous question. And also, how was that trach performed? Was it performed emergently or electively? Which can give us a sense as to, in the emergency department, what to expect if we interrogate that trach. And then whether it's a cuffed trach or an uncuffed trach, which will become important as we talk about complications later in this podcast. Beyond the type of trach, we'll ask how old the trach is. In the pre-hospital setting, I think it would be unlikely for us to encounter a trach that's less than a week old. Uh, but we'll have to manage those a little bit differently than we would a mature trach. So a trach that's been there for more than seven days. So asking when the patient was traked and when this particular cannula was introduced. And then the last sort of question I want to ask is any previous complications of that tracheostomy. So have they been instrumented recently? Have they required a trach change recently? And have they ever had bleeding or any other issues with their trach? All right, that's great. Thank you, Dr. Kelton. And the last question that we have, just to start off our intro, is what type of equipment should be available to assist with these patients? Uh, Certainly when dealing with a trach patient, as much equipment as you have is going to be really important. The way I sort of divide that up is thinking about what help that you'll need. And in the pre-hospital setting, predominantly urgent or rapid transport for these patients will be important to get expertise in the room. And certainly even from the emergency department, I'm early working on involving our surgical colleagues who are much more familiar with these apparatuses than I am. So I think 
considering rapid transport for these patients and getting them to the hospital quickly will be important. But if in the event that you're required to manage that trach patient in a pre-hospital setting, I'd say that uh, any trach equipment that the provider or their caretakers may have will be important to obtain, making sure they have suction uh, that's working and as optimized as you can get it making sure they have a way to ventilate them through the tracheostomy, so a BVM and having that available ready to go. And then for our ACP crews who may have the ability to intubate, having a small endotracheal tube, which could substitute for a trach cannula in a pinch. So having that equipment and getting as much of it to the bedside as possible for managing these patients is going to be important. That's great. So super important to know what to have on hand. And Dr. Kelton, do you think you could elaborate on what small size of endotracheal tubes are we talking here? You know, typically what I would ask for, and again, it'll depend on what you have available to you, but typically I'd have as many options as I as I can <laughs> bring to the bedside. Um, but looking at sort of a 5-0 or a 6-0 endotracheal tube to start with, anticipating that the stoma for the tracheostomy may be quite a bit smaller than our typical airway openings. Gotcha. Thank you. Well, that's a fantastic overview of tracheostomies in general, but I think you've got some particular things you want to cover today. Do you want to take us through that? I do. So I've got three topics or three sort of emergent complications of tracheostomies that I thought we'd go over today. And so I want to go over very quickly an approach to decannulation or the patient inadvertently removing their trach. And we'll talk a little bit in that part about reinserting a trach. We'll talk through an approach to obstruction of a tracheostomy. And then finally, we'll talk about an approach to a bleeding tracheostomy. Awesome. So starting with number one, approach to decannulation and reinsertion. So this is when we're talking about your reinsertion medical directive. So I'll be reiterating a couple of things throughout the podcast. And the first is that in all of these patients, you know, thinking about our next steps and who's going to help us out with managing these patients is important. So thinking about, again, early transport and notifying the hospital that you're coming with a trach patient who might be quite unwell are going to be the start of all of these algorithms that we'll talk through. The second common thread in all these algorithms will be providing oxygen in any way possible to these patients to temporize them till we can get expertise to help us. So thinking about these patients, they'll have their tracheostomy site at the anterior neck, but also thinking about applying oxygen to the face and the nose for those patients who may still have a patent upper airway will be very important. So in all these patients who've decannulated, I would apply oxygen by face mask and then oxygen to the stoma to hopefully temporize them. And then the first sort of dividing point in this algorithm will be how stable is that patient and are they able to oxygenate and ventilate safely? If the patient's very stable, maybe they've decannulated, but they're you know, generally doing well, that you're mentating well, they're getting oxygen and ventilating reasonably safely, then it's reasonable to transport them and do nothing and not manipulate the trach site and not try, try to reinsert that trach. However, unfortunately, in many of these settings, these patients have a valid reason for tracheostomy, and that may not be the case. And so in our unstable patient, who may be desatting, who may be altered because they're not ventilating adequately, we have to ask ourselves, again, one of those golden questions we talked about, which is how old is that tracheostomy? And so when the trach is mature, so it's more than a week old, we have a couple of options. We can try to replace that tracheostomy. And so that's where, Dr. Valdis, I think we'll talk about your reinsertion medical directive. And then our other option, if we are unable or uncomfortable replacing a tracheostomy, would to be to attempt to intubate these patients from above. But I would say a big caveat here is that these patients are trached and likely have a very valid reason for tracheostomy. And so these intubations can be expected to be extraordinarily difficult, both anatomically, plus you're starting with a patient who's difficult to optimize from an oxygenation and ventilation perspective. And so I would advise significant caution when trying to intubate these patients and planning for the worst case scenario, certainly anatomically. 
I'll turn it over to Dr. Valdis to talk quickly about your reinsertion medical directive. Absolutely. So fantastic pearls in there. So a quick reminder that the uh, reinsertion medical directive states that reinsertion is indicated when a patient has an existing tracheotomy, wherein the inner and or outer cannula have been removed. So the decannulation that we keep referring to and the patient is in respiratory distress and inability to adequately ventilate, and there is no family member or caregiver who's available and knowledgeable to replace the tracheostomy cannula. So if it's out and the patient's in no distress, it's not on you as the paramedic to reinsert the tracheostomy tube. That can be done in hospital. And maybe Dr. Kelton, you can tell us a little bit about why a blind insertion or reinserting when we don't have to could be a problem. So certainly these patients, uh, especially the more immature trachs, but certainly any tracheostomy site, especially if it was performed emergently and maybe not optimized in that you know, initial trach uh, setting, if we're blindly and forcefully trying to reinsert a tracheostomy tube, we can create a false passage, which is essentially putting the trach anywhere but the airway, um, and that can cause respiratory arrest, bleeding, and further complications by obstructing the airway. And so it's very important to do sort of gentle one, and I believe your insertion directive says up to two, but no more attempts to reinsert that tracheostomy, certainly because this can be a very easy way to traumatize an already difficult airway. Great. And that's correct. So there's a maximum of two attempts at reinsertion per the medical directive. And a pearl here to remember is that the single contraindication to reinsertion per the directive is inability to landmark or visualize. So if you can't see where that tube should go, you shouldn't be trying to put it, uh, as Dr. Kelton put very well, anywhere other than the airway. It seems so straightforward, but I can only imagine it's a very difficult skill and certainly not a skill that myself as an eMERGE resident is very familiar with. And so I think if these patients are stable, we do have a nice window of time before we need to reinsert that tracheostomy. And so if they are stable, not unreasonable to consider rapid transport and serial reassessments at that point. Stenosis of those stoma sites will occur within 12 hours in most cases. Um, and so if that trach has been out for quite some time, then reinsertion may be very difficult because that stoma site could narrow. So again, treating these patients with an abundance of caution, planning ahead and planning multiple uh, plan A, B, C, D, E if you've got one will be very important. And I think important really to go back to those questions we asked before about what is the patency of the upper airway likely to be. So if these are patients who've had a laryngectomy, you will not be able to intubate them from above and your only way to ventilate them will be through that stoma site. If you're unable to reinsert that tracheostomy, then considering bagging them through that site using, if you have it, a pediatric LMA or a pediatric BVM mask at the stoma site to try to provide them with oxygen and improve their ventilation. Great. And just a quick note that from the pre-hospital standpoint that a pediatric LMA shouldn't be used for the tracheostomy. That might be something that you see in hospital, but uh, not something that we would expect you to do from a pre-hospital standpoint. So the supraglottic airway should only be used for airway requirement. And remember that if there's a suspected obstruction, that that's a contraindication for your supraglottic airway. So the pearl there is definitely to use the pediatric mask to oxygenate. And then just a, a quick reminder that if the patient or family tells you that they did not have a laryngectomy, Dr. Kelton, are you now free and clear to definitely have a patent communication between the mouth and the trachea? Absolutely not. So a laryngectomy, I think, as we've mentioned before, is not the only indication for tracheostomy in, in these patients. Upper airway obstructions can come from malignancy, from radiation, from congenital abnormalities. There's all sorts of reasons that they may not have a patent passage between their mouth, their oropharynx, nasopharynx, and their trachea. 
And so even if the family's able to tell you they've not had laryngectomy, you still need to anticipate that this will be an anatomically extraordinarily difficult intubation. Perfectly summarized. Anatomically extremely difficult patient. So if you're still having trouble oxygenating, even if there's no history of laryngectomy, you're having trouble from above, go straight to the source to oxygenate. And Dr. Kelton, do you have any tips for oxygenation? So again, I think we, we mentioned it before, but I'll reiterate that we may not know the patency of the upper airway. So I apply oxygen to basically any site that I can. And so nasal prongs, considering a face mask uh, for oxygen, even if they've had a laryngectomy, there may be a small port that allows some communication. It won't allow an endotracheal tube, but it may allow some communication between the upper airways and their trachea. So applying oxygen anywhere you can certainly will cause no harm and could very well temporize that patient until we can get a definitive airway. If the patient has a trach that you know is a cuffed tracheostomy tube and the cuff is deflated, you could consider inflating it uh, to provide positive pressure. So that'll give you a bit more of a seal to be able to bag them. And then we talked a little bit about using a peds mask at the stoma site to try to oxygenate them. So we do have certainly some options there. And why would a peds mask be the go-to for the stoma site? The stoma site, it's going to be quite small. And the contour of the neck is going to mean that with a large adult size mask, getting a good seal will be very difficult. And especially, you know, it's not a site that we're very comfortable with bagging. We can't get our fingers down around the jaw to maintain that seal. So it'll be a lot easier with a pediatric mask to obtain a viable seal and provide positive pressure. Fantastic, Pearl. So that, I think, is what I've got as far as an approach to decannulation and reinsertion. Um, I guess the other thing to think about is when optimizing these patients, planning for your difficult airway, using your adjuncts if you have them. So if your service carries them, considering things like bougie and other adjuncts, positioning your patient, pre-oxygenating as best you can to really optimize your first attempt. Because these patients, I think, as we don't, don't want to beat a dead horse, but these will be extraordinarily difficult <laughs> intubations. It's certainly something that, as an eMERGE doc, I'm apprehensive thinking about, and so planning for that and uh, preparing as best you can in the pre-hospital setting will be important. Phew. So that was a great review of uh, tracheostomy medical directives and some fantastic pearls. So next up, Dr. Kelton's going to talk to us about the approach to obstruction and using your tracheostomy suctioning medical directive. All right. So on to number two, approach to obstruction. So this is using your trach suction medical directive. Dr. Kelton, is there any part of the trach itself that can cause an obstruction? Absolutely. Um, so again, it's going to depend a little bit on why the patient has the trach, uh, but many of our patients who are in the process of being weaned from their tracheostomy will actually have a cap or speaking valve uh, over the uh, outflow tract of the trach, and that itself can cause an obstruction. In, in fact, it's the valve that functions as an obstruction to prevent outflow of air uh, through the valve and force it up through the upper airway so the patient can speak and generate sounds. So that's certainly something that in a patient who is complaining of an obstructed trach or appears to be suffering from an obstructed trach, removing that cap or speaking valve can be a very simple way to A, allow yourself to suction and access the inner cannulas, but also clear a potential obstruction point. The other parts that can be obstructed are the inner cannula. So some trachs, not all trachs, but many of them will have a removable inner cannula. So a tube within a tube, and that inner tube can become blocked or obstructed in a number of different ways, blood, secretions. And so actually removing that inner cannula can often give you a patent airway without having to do much with the trach itself. Great. And that's a, one of those questions from the outset to ask the family if you're not sure is if they have uh, an inner and an outer cannula with that tracheostomy. And Dr. Kelton, what about suctioning itself? Will that cause an obstruction, putting that tube down there? It certainly will. And that's something that I think a lot of us don't think about uh, when we think about suctioning a trach or an endotracheal tube. 
it's it can be a very distressing process for the patient, especially if they're awake and alert. So often warning them that you're, what you're about to do is important, and they'll have experienced suctioning before most likely, but you can expect that they will cough and they'll likely be sad a little bit when you suction. So preparing for that, making sure that the trach is well secured, so making sure that you've got a good hold of it, that it's not going to become displaced if the patient coughs, so whether it's the straps or whether you're manually holding it, and then thinking with your suction about passing short but deep passes and using a bit of a twisting motion to make it successful suctioning but making it deliberate but also sort of short and sweet, get in and get out because the patients, you're causing an obstruction itself and it can be very distressing and and noxious stimuli for the patients who will cough most likely and may desat a little bit. That's great. So remember per the directive that you're going to pre-oxygenate with 100% oxygen and specifically it's written into the directive to not exceed 10 seconds of suctioning with a dosing interval of one minute and a maximum number of five doses per the medical directive. So Dr. Kelton, let's say the trig is out. So now you're utilizing your reinsertion medical directive. What might be some things that would be causing obstruction, so inability to ventilate and oxygenate, and what can we do about this? So certainly we've talked a little bit about reinserting trach tubes anyway and the potential to cause a false passage. So certainly if that trach is anywhere but the airway, uh, you're going to have difficulty ventilating a patient through that trach. So this is why we need to be very, very careful and not force our reinsertion when we are attempting to do so because creating that false passage can really distort the anatomy and cause a lot of difficulty for the patient and obviously it's not going to be a pain airway. So removing the tracheostomy from that false passage should it occur and either trying again because you can make up to two attempts Or if you feel that you're not able to landmark and visualize, you would stop. That would be your contraindication to your medical directive. And at that point, oxygenate the best way you can while transporting the patient rapidly. So whether it's bagging the stoma like we talked about, but definitely applying oxygen to the upper airway as well. Other sources of obstruction can include, like we talked about, masses in the upper airway, that laryngectomy patient who doesn't have a patent upper airway. Those are scary situations and likely that patient was traked relatively urgently for that reason. And so in this scenario, this is where we need to think about optimizing our intubation setting. If we are going to attempt to intubate from above, you can try passing a bougie either through the trach site or through your upper airway. And then consider if you are an ACP and you are considering intubating this patient, think about using a small endotracheal tube to get around that obstruction, optimizing your positioning, pre-oxygenating the patient to the best of your ability, and really making that first pass your most optimized pass. Other obstructions that can occur, we talked about secretions. So this is where your suctioning directive will come in handy. So certainly attempting to suction that trach and then suctioning uh, the upper airway can certainly be helpful. And then bleeding is the other incidence where you can see an obstructed tracheostomy. So we'll talk a little bit more about bleeding here in a second, but certainly blood secretions can bung up a trach. All right. And this bleeding is something that Dr. Kelton spoke of in her grand rounds and something I personally know I learned something from and carry it with me to this day. So it really stuck out for something that uh, you as paramedics should also know. So let's go through that now. So number three, approach to bleeding. So this is, you know, very frequently going to be a minimal bleed, but this has the harbinger to be a life-threatening emergency. So any bleeding tracheostomy of any kind needs to be taken very, very seriously. The big scary thing that we think about here is something called a tracheoinominate fistula. And so it's a false passage formed between the innominate artery, which is a large branch coming right off the aorta, for those of us who need a refresher on anatomy. So big uh, artery, high blood pressure, and a fistula formed there between that artery and the airway. So as you can imagine, lots of potential for badness there. Bleeding after tracheostomy happens in about 6 6% of patients, and about 1% of patients will have this sort of TIF or tracheonominate fistula. 
And so as you can imagine, having high volume bleeding is a, is a bad thing. Like a volcano. Le- like a volcano, really. Yeah, it leads to uh, hypovolemic shock, potentially, but also you're getting that blood going into your airways. And so lots of potential for badness there uh, with bleeding into a, into a large airway into the lungs. The interesting thing about TIFs is they don't always present with that volcano presentation. And so the majority of them actually present with what we call a sentinel bleed, which is a scenario where the patient may show tiny scant amounts of bleeding or hemoptysis from the trach site, which may progress to that volcano of blood that Dr. Valdis so aptly put it that we fear in these patients. So any patient who is having any bleeding from their trach site must be transported to the emergency department. And from my perspective as an eMERGE doc, they have to be seen and scoped. So a tiny camera passed down through the trach to visualize the site of the bleeding by our ENT surgeons, ear, nose, and throat surgeons prior to leaving the eMERGE. And that's absolutely very, very important to stress. And speaking with our ENT surgeon colleagues, they would agree with that. And so these patients, even if it's a scant amount of bleeding and they reassure you that it's likely from their granulation tissue or some scar tissue, these patients in all cases should be transported and should be seen in the emergency department by specialist consultation. So if you're seeing bleeding from a trach site, we have to, again, think about providing oxygen in whatever mode we can. So applying oxygen to the face and to the stoma site, we need to think about rapidly transporting these patients because there's going to be minimal in a pre-hospital or even an emergency department setting that we can do to temporize these, this bleeding because it's often inaccessible uh, to us. So we need to think about transporting them urgently. If they're stable, then transport is all we need to do. If they're unstable, then we need to think about ways that we can slow that bleeding or apply pressure to that fire hose before it gets out of control. And so then we have a little bit of an algorithm that we can walk our way down. And so the first step is if they have a cuff trach, and again, sort of going back to those cardinal questions we've asked, we would know that at this point. And so if they have a cuff trach, we can actually inflate that trach cuff and we can hopefully use that pressure in that cuff to tamponade the bleeding because that's the most common site of the bleeding is right at that cuff. If that's not successful, what we can sometimes do is reach around the trach uh, through the stoma with our you know, hopefully a small gloved finger, and apply digital pressure. So direct pressure, same as we would to any other bleeding site externally, but we can apply pressure sort of hooking our finger through the trach site uh, and pulling forward to pinch the anterior uh, wall of the trachea against the sternum or against our thumb, which is a bit hard to explain over this, but uh, we can. I can certainly provide a photo for the show notes if that's helpful. But applying digital pressure as best we can If we still can't get control of that sort of volcano bleeding or that significant bleeding, then certainly in the emergency department, we would remove the trach and consider intubating from above with a cuffed endotracheal tube. And again, working around that endotracheal tube to reach through the stoma and try to apply digital pressure against the sternum again. Ultimately, these patients need to go to the operating room. Um, Those who survive to make it to the operating room, about 50% of them will die. So this, just to reiterate, is an extraordinarily serious complication of trachs. And this is the reason that we need to transport these patients emergently to the emergency department. Um, But that would be sort of the things we can do to temporize that bleeding during transport and during uh, consultation. And I think calling ahead to give the department a heads up so we can get surgical uh, opinions in the room relatively quickly would be very helpful from my perspective. That's great. Thanks so much, Dr. Kelton. So just digital pressure, pressure exactly on that site. If you're having to stick your finger into the stoma site, that's when, besides the fact that you're calling to let the hospital know that something big and bad is coming their way, and definitely should, this is a time for a BHP patch because now you're operating outside of your medical directors by sticking a finger in the um, airway. So 
this is something in which you should be calling for a patch for and something that you can discuss with the emergency physician. Now, if you have to do a retro patch because you are dealing with a patient who's bleeding out from that hole, that's something that um, may happen. But just a quick reminder that this um, digital pressure inside the stoma is operating outside of your normal practice as a paramedic, so would require a BHP patch. So that summarizes our uh, talk for today. So thank you so much, Dr. Kelton, for joining us today. It's been a great review of our medical directives with regards to approach to insertion, obstruction, and the new addition of bleeding pearls. So a huge key to remember is that that sentinel bleed, so any bleeding for that tracheostomy site, then the patient needs to be transported to the emergency department. Remember that little bleeding can cause a result of a volcano or fire hose if not assessed. A quick note is that another fantastic trach resource is the awesome webinar put together by Mike Filio, our pre-hospital care specialist from April 2019, wherein he reviews his outstanding tracheostomy emergency flowchart. So we'll put a link to the webinar on the podcast page as well for ease of direction. So thank you so much again, Dr. Kelton, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a, been a pleasure. And thanks, everybody, for listening. If you have any questions, please send them to myself. So it's Lauren, L-A-U-R-E-N dot Valdis, V-A-L-D-I-S at lhsc.on.ca. And we will have that on the podcast site as well. So thanks, everybody, again, and take care. Bye.